All right, and welcome. Uh, we have a very special guest here today, and that is one of the writers of season one and three and a staff writer of season two of The Wire, Rafael Alvarez. Not only that, he's also a decorated writer of uh, short fiction, of uh, many other uh, books and, and, and series of that nature, as well as a writer from the Baltimore Sun, journalist. And uh, yeah, we're, we're very, very lucky to have him on the podcast today. W- welcome, Rafael Elvarez. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, guys. I'm very glad to be here. I'm glad, yeah. So um, we're, we're probably going to be starting with your career mostly and then diving off into The Wire eventually. Um, de- definitely focusing on The Wire Season 2 and your work there. So um, something that, that, that we were talking about, because we were recording our, our Season 5 episode last night of, of uh, the, that review, the final season. And in recording it, we were talking a lot about, um, I, I guess, predicting like the, the, the tone that we got from the writers of um, the show. And, and, it, and it brought me to an interesting question. For you, early in your career, before The Wire, before any, any of that, what came first, your desire to write or your desire to talk about Baltimore and devote your career to Baltimore, which ended up being writing? Writing always. Yeah. From the third grade. Really? Uh, wow. And, uh, and I don't know where it came from. I come from a family of uh, blue-collar, skilled craftsmen. No writers in the family prior to me. When I was in the third grade, we had a teacher who read out loud to us after recess, and she read the classic E.B. White books, Charlotte's Web and Stuart Little. And there was something about listening to her read Stuart Little out loud. Um, You know, the movie in your head is always better than the movie on the screen. Right. And I just came, I just, there was this other kid in the, in the class who said, I'm going to be a writer. And I said, well, I'm going to be one too. And, um, the Baltimore stuff, uh, came in a couple of ways for starters. I come from, even though I don't come from a family of writers prior to my generation, I do come from a family of storytellers. My father is a seafarer, uh, long retired, uh, left Baltimore to work ships as a teenager, uh, then spent 35 years uh, on the Baltimore waterfront as a tugboat engineer. And that will engage us in our wire conversation a little bit later. And I had a a host of relatives that did different types of work, like what I would call real work, like, you know, building things and all. my Polish grandfather worked at the brewery uh, up the street from where my mother grew up. My Spanish grandfather worked in the shipyard and built Liberty ships during World War II. Um, my Polish grandmother worked in sweatshops and made sandbags for the Allies during World War II. Um, my mother, you know, these are people that you would, you would go to work as early as 14 um, and just get some kind of little job, you know, at the grocery store. My mother worked in uh, Jewish delis in uh, the original Jewish neighborhood of Baltimore. And uh, something that like watching TV while we ate dinner was that never happened. It, it wasn't even something that uh, I that was considered. And first of all, there wasn't a TV in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we were. uh engaged in, 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 in conversation. And I soaked up all these stories, um, 
on Sunday dinners at my Spanish and Italian grandparents' house, there was always like some extra guy at the table that had just gotten off a ship, you know, and stories of old Spain and stories of the Spanish Civil War. And uh, and I just I just absorbed it all. And then I came to a crossroads when I decided to get very serious about being a fiction writer, which is uh, my heart of hearts. I've learned to do all the other kind of writing to make a living. Um, it's no different than a carpenter learning, you know, maybe just to build cabinets to bring in some easy money and then, you know, learn to even build a house that more reflects your personal aesthetics. And the crossroads I came to, and, and I remember it very clearly, and I asked myself this question, like it was a self-appointed apprenticeship. I, I was already getting bylines in the morning paper. I landed on the city desk of the sun when I was 20 years old, got bylines on the front page at a, at a very young age. But yet I was, you know, I, I was obsessed with, 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 with books and writing fiction. And I asked myself this question, are, are you going to, in your stories, are you going to create a totally fictitious universe? Like, you know, like a city that feels a lot like Baltimore, but where you make up all the street names and you totally make up all the factories and the this and the that. Or will you use what's right in front of you and uh, build your fiction on the chassis of uh, a historic city? Um, that is vibrant and conflicted and beautiful and strange. And I chose the latter and in part for two reasons. Number one, as a young reporter, I was getting paid to study this city. Yeah, right, right. You know, it was graduate school in, in, in urban folklore. Uh, even though I, I did obits, I did cops, I, you name it, I did it. And uh, it also occurred to me uh, and, and part of this was getting married young and having children at a very young age. I had, what, three kids by the time I was 26. Um, that New York and Paris did not need another writer. Mm. But Baltimore mm. was like, you, you'll always hear um, writers talk about mapping out their turf. Like this square mile of earth is mine, you know, and, you know, Faulkner did it. Joyce did it. Uh, William Kennedy, who wrote uh, who wrote Barfly, and and uh, did he write Barfly? Not sure. Yeah, not sure. <laughs> he, William Kennedy is famous for uh, Ironweed. He's famous for Ironweed. He uh, he 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 mapped out you know um, Albany, New York, is his, and so I decided to make Baltimore mine, and uh, the field was somewhat uncrowded. Yeah. Uh-huh. This is all before, you know, David Simon and John I was about to say, oh, for sure. Levinson. That's like like you you made decisions early on. So that that was still while you were you said that that was while you were at the Sun before you had really run yeah, into Yeah, I wor- I worked for the Sun papers. I wrote on the city desk of the Sun uh or I joined the Sun of Baltimore in 1977 and stayed there till 2001. Mm-hmm. I started in the circulation department, then I went to the sports department, then at around 2021 or something i was on the city desk and um and sort of do you guys know who joseph mitchell is joseph mitchell i do track down uh, a book of his his anthology called up in the old hotel joseph mitchell was a new yorker writer Uh he actually wrote uh 
Joe Gould's Secret, which became a film with Stanley Tucci and Ian Gould. Oh, both. No, great. Ian Holm. I'm sorry, Ian Holm. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Mitchell, one of my heroes, was the kind of journalist who just wandered around New York and met oddballs. You and know, and, and I had an opportunity to cover state government or cover the Eastern Shore or whatever the beats were. And I always said, no, I had this strong sense. And, and, I, and that's how you climb the ladder, you know, is do it, you know, um, proving yourself in these different beats. You know, they start everybody on cops and obituaries. And, and I was I told them, look, I'll do any shift somebody else does not want to do if you leave me alone for two days a week and don't ask me a single question about where I am or what I'm doing. And I promise you let me go out fishing and I'll bring home a fish. Uh -huh. And in that way, I started to do Baltimore folklore based on the kind of characters I knew from my own family. Um, I'm not saying I'm in Joseph Mitchell's league. I'm just saying that those are the kind of stories that he is famous for. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, that was your direct inspiration that you were like that. That's I, I see what this guy is doing and I want to do something similar. I didn't know he existed at that time. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> it was only later that I figured it out. Um, <laughs> and you were like, oh, this guy's still my thunder. He's, he's doing no, everything. No, it was, it was instinct. It was instinct. Uh, yeah. You'll love Joseph Mitchell. Uh, That's when exciting. You, when you start reading them. Um, you know, like I love the guy that collected light bulbs, you know? There's, right. Uh, wow. You know, any city of a certain size or even small towns like uh, which Larry McMurtry uh, may rest in peace did very good at finding the oddballs in, in little Texas towns. I mean, as a Texan, you know, Mac, um, you know, I'm sure, you know, your share of, of McMurtry. I have a McMurtry story where I drove 800 miles to uh, interview him about 12 years or so. Uh, no, shit. 21 years ago. <laughs> Uh, do you know where Archer City, Texas is? Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, that's that's he that's where McMurtry grew up and turned the downtown into a uh, into just a town of books. He bought all the yeah. downtown mm -hmm. buildings. I had written him a letter and he says, Sure, stop by, I'd be happy to talk to you. I drive eight hundred miles and he forgets that I had even written him a letter and <laughs> Did he do the interview? Yeah, he did, but he was he was tired and sweaty and you know, uh, he gave me about 15 minutes, but did you dirty something that I'll never forget from that interview. Uh, and, you know, here I was in the presence of a great man and I didn't want to, you know, uh, I wanted to be polite and all. And I was disappointed, naturally. Um, I said I asked him, what is more toxic, sexual or romantic jealousy or literary jealousy? And he said, no contest. You figure that one out for yourself. That's all he said. No contest. Figure it out for yourself. Wow. No wow. contest. Well, let me tell you, so far, you being Arming Murtry, I you have not been a disappointment at all thus far. Let me tell you. So the uh... <laughs> Gee, thanks, Mac. <laughs> so nice to hear. Just just buttering at, him up. At the very least. Not a disappointment. I'll give you my grade on you guys later. <laughs> oh no, no, no. So they're they're um yeah, you were you were talking about the, yeah, you were saying that the the uh, the urge to to storytell at a very early age was always the the um, the thing that surpassed your you know and and um, and specifically short fiction surpassed your want to write really anything else. So I'm curious um, after looking through the uh, storyteller anthology from the Baltimore Sun that that was released. 
Um, I'm curious, what is the separation for you? Did you, whenever you ended up working for the Baltimore Sun, did you have to find uh, while you're working there that, you know, that, that, that relation, did it end up, did, I, I guess, did it fill that hole that you were always looking for, that gaping hole of need with, um, with yes, short fiction? It, it, yes and no, in, in, in a couple of different ways. For starters, I could not believe they were paying me to write. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would pinch myself. <laughs> You know, and now remember, before I started working for the Sun, I wrote for an alternative paper in Baltimore called the City Paper. Right. Uh -huh. um, and got like my first byline at 19, you know, on a longshoreman strike. Which, so as you can see, my life wow. keeps circling around what itself. What a freaking coincidence. I could not believe that they were paying me to write. Early on, I wasn't bringing too much of my own desires to it. I was doing anything they told me. Mm-hmm anything and everything. Um, I did not go to journalism school. You know, I had to learn how to do this. I, I kept journals from a very young age. Um, I wrote stories from a very young age. And so I was adept at, and I even did things like, I don't even know where this came from. I think it's because I had some sports heroes and I read their biographies and they always talked about practice. And I knew I was not gonna be a professional ball player. But I had this idea, well, okay, I will, I will apply their discipline to gr taking grounders to, and I, and I, I instituted, I put myself on a regimen of writing 500 words a day at around the age of 15. And I would keep box scores. Like I would, you know, I'd keep track of how many I did each day and then divide it and do my averages and how I did for the month wow. and was May better than April, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing, but I did know what yeah. I was doing. Uh, so by the time I got to the sun, um, I, had, I, I had a very uh, sort of natural facility for stringing words together. But that doesn't mean I knew what I was doing. <laughs> um, so I studied the newspaper. That was, you know, I studied, I knew who was considered, everyone talks in newsrooms, you know who's considered the best writer. Yeah. You know who's considered the best reporter. Uh, every now and then, um, there comes along uh, the total package where the guy is or the woman, uh, great reporter and great writer. That doesn't happen a lot, but um, anyway, I, I would I would study their uh, stories, and um, I would bring a little bit of my own, you know, verve to it. But you know, I had to learn how to write. Um, things such as, and there was a lot of this, a 22-year-old East Baltimore man was found dead yesterday after a molasses tanker truck overturned in the 2600 block of Pennington Avenue, comma, according to police, period. Bang. Now, I just rattled that off off the top of my head. That's, I did it. That's crazy. And then, and then, okay, so then one of the staples, the staples <laughs> of a daily newspaper are cops and robbers, obits, and the weather story. People love weather stories. Mm. And it's weird because you're telling them what they already know. Yeah. Right. right? If, if it's hot as blazes today and I'm writing for tomorrow morning, I'm going to tell my readers it was hot as blazes yesterday. Yeah. But then I realized that the weather story was a canvas for originality and invention. And I would use the weather story. All you had to do was get in the temperature, 
the predictions, the forecast, uh, right. whether somebody died of heat, uh, whatever they call it, heat something or other. Heat stroke, uh, yeah. And, um, but anyway, I, I learned that, um, you know, my facility for, for sort of turning a phrase that uh, I could start to have, I started to have, once I got some confidence, I started to have fun with this stuff. Like one time I put this lead on a weather story that was, uh, it was so hot yesterday, the chickens were standing in line to get plucked. <laughs> you know, now I had earned, res- I had earned the respect of my editors to the point where they mm. knew, I mean, that's the hook, right? They knew that after that, I was going to touch all the bases of the meteorological, uh, you know, contents of a weather story. And, and they started uh, trusting my instincts. And then the whole time I was also writing about music and chasing old bluesmen. And uh, do you guys know what a, uh, a graphophile is? A graphophile. Um, no, it's not illegal. Okay. For starters, it's not illegal. It's not illegal. It's not Matt Gates. Okay. 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 (laughs) A graphophile is someone who has a compulsion to put words on paper. Oh, okay. I see. Okay. That makes sense. It, it's a compulsion to write. And I think, or I, I don't think, I know I have it. Yeah. I take a notebook everywhere. Um, and so, you know, I could tell these stories forever if you'd like to direct the conversation in any Well, I mean, way. hey, look. No, I'm sorry. You're, I, you're so fascinating. You're so fun to listen to. So, the, I mean, you kind of answered another question that I had, which was, um, uh, do you carve out time um, to to get your writing in, or do you just let inspiration hit you? And it sounds like both. Um, <laughs> I don't write, Mac. I don't eat. Okay. Right. I'm, <laughs> sure, I'm a sure. full time freelancer in a post literate right. America. Uh huh. I wow. write ten yeah. to twelve hours, seven days a week, including my birthday. Here's how it goes. Sometimes I write for Johns Hopkins University. They have a newsletter. They pay right. very well. Nothing I'm crazy about, but it's a nice chunk of change. Uh Mm -hmm. So I have five or six projects going on at all time. I currently have a screenplay going. I'm on the third draft of a novel. I have a Patreon account, which I would love for you guys to tell folks about. Absolutely. Um, So I go to work every day. Uh, Do you know who a musician named Frank Zappa was? Absolutely. Okay, good. Absolutely, yeah. I'd have to hang up on you if you didn't. (laughs) Graphophile? No. Zappa? Mm. Zappa, I'm out. Right. Well, I I got to interview Zappa several times because he was one of my teenage heroes. And, uh, you know, his... The the true artist, in my mind, unless, you you know, you wind up suffering from mental illness or alcoholism or all the things that that get in the way of making art, goes to work every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They don't sit around and wait for inspiration. It, you know, if, 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 if saxophone players sat around and waited to be inspired, there would be no saxophone player. Yeah. So what I do is I know that I'm going to be writing all day, every day. And, um, you know, I break for lunch. I take a little nap. I, I'll get up and take a walk. Uh, I use the first two to three hours of every day for me, for my writing. So I work, the first thing I do every morning is work on the novel. Then I might write a little memoir. Um, Then I will uh, answer some mail. I still write old fashioned mail. In fact, one of my Patreon um, uh, offers to folks is uh, quote unquote, real mail. 
because mm. no people don't get real mail anymore. So you get a, you can get a personalized postcard from me once a month if you're interested. And then uh, one because when I first wake up and I have that first cup of coffee, I'm at my most creative. Right. I'm most able to dissect the puzzles behind the plots of my screenplays and my fiction. Then I just put on, you know, I, I set that aside. I, I feel that I've accomplished what I wanted to that day. And then I put on sort of my, uh, my ditch diggers work clothes and I start <laughs> digging ditches. You know, I, uh, I make some money editing other people's writing. Um, uh -huh. I make some money uh, writing a column for two or three publications uh, in the mid-Atlantic area. Uh, I have to keep my Patreon. I have a, over 100 Patreon followers, and I have to keep them satisfied with all this, that, and the other thing. And, uh, and then um, at the end of the night, if I'm feeling inspired, uh, I will go back to something creative. So, you know, I write, I work every day. Yeah, absolutely. That, that that right there is impeccable. Sp specifically, just finding so many different ways. Not necessarily because as a writer, obviously, you're not gonna just be getting paid out the wazoo all the time. That's just yeah. not how it works. So finding <laughs> no. ways to every day be uh, you, you, not only just like making money for yourself, but uh, like consisting consistently pushing yourself creatively. That's amazing the fact that you have those systems set in place to always i mean be i've been working work. i've been a professional writer for what 45 years now. yeah yeah and uh i figured out a way to make ends meet so the money is is important but the older i get it's really about leaving behind a body of work what am i going to uh -huh. leave behind um one of my favorite writers is the uh nobel prize winner uh vs naipaul he was very famous for a book called A House for Mr. Beeswas. And as he got older, he would um, calculate how many pages he thought he'd have left before he dropped dead. You know, how many pages will I produce <laughs> wow. before I'm dead? Um, I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, not um, at all. I, you know, uh, so, so, you know, the things that suffer are things like, I don't wash my car. Right. My car's filthy, you know. Um, Why would you? You don't need to. <laughs> I mean, come on. Um, my house is clean, but I, I have a, a woman who comes once a week. And uh, here's a cool story, though. This is a Baltimore story. Hmm. This is a woman I met at a pizza parlor. She's a waitress at uh, the most famous of all Baltimore pizza parlors. It's called Matthews. My parents went there as teenagers. Right. And she's got great stories. Um a lot of uh, determination and wanted to be a writer. So I trade her tutoring for house cleaning. You're kidding. And, <laughs> no, oh, not. Wow. and then she brings me a pizza every once in a while. Nice. Um, what, what do you tutor her in specifically? I'm, I'm assuming writing? Memoir. Okay. Yeah, oh, yeah, writing, right, right. Mac, writing's the only thing I know how to do. Okay. <laughs> I mean, well, and, and here's another point though. I, you know, it's not just like, like alcoholism and mental illness or, or I don't know, fear of being broke. You know, many of the best writers I've ever known washed out because they went to uh, law school, you know? Yeah. Um, I would love to be a musician, but I'm not. I would love to be a visual mm -hmm. artist, but I'm not. 
I would love to be fluent in multiple languages, but I'm not. The only thing I know how to do is write an English sentence, mm -hmm. um, you know, with any real skill. So I have friends along, along the way who can do multiple things and they don't get their writing done because they, you know, they, they spend half of that, you know, I'm doing 10 to 12 a day on mute on, on writing. They may only be doing three on writing because they're spending the rest of the day playing guitar or painting. And, and mm -hmm. I, that, which is not to say that um, their, their music and their art is not valuable and, 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 um, and worthwhile. It's just to say that uh, every bit of my creative energy goes into leaving behind a document of my experiences on planet Earth. While alive, yeah. <laughs> wow, that is admirable, absolutely admirable. The, the, um, I, so now I'm extremely curious. The, uh, you clearly have a serious understanding of you know, what, what it is to work and how to produce uh, consistent writing and whatnot. So... I, I'm now curious, what is it like whenever you go into a writing room or go into a writing scenario where you are not, where you're not the only writer? Yeah. Well, I hate well, it. I fucking hate <laughs> it. Well, because I, I, that also leads to the next question, like, especially with The Wire, with, with, um, with season two, was that... Uh, I guess how much control did you have mm -hmm. over that one specifically? And was it weird picking up characters that, 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 you, were, that you didn't create in your head already? Well, okay, so let's talk about season two. Number one, one of the reasons I don't do well in writer's rooms is because um, I hate collaboration. I'd rather mm -hmm. do it your way or my way. But, man, I just hate compromise. I hate putting shit mm -hmm. on paper, ripping it up putting shit on paper, written it. I rewrite my stuff 10, 12, 15 times. Um, but I have my own idiosyncratic approach. I'm a team player, but I don't like being on a team. Um, yeah. I work, I work alone. And, uh, and the older I get, I just don't want to talk to people. In fact, you know, I'm getting a little tired right now. We're going to have to do this. <laughs> we'll have to do this in two segments. Um, the reason David Simon invited me to be on staff for season two is because it was about a milieu and a culture that I grew up in. Right. Okay. Not only, so my grandfather came to America on a ship from Spain in 1925, worked at the shipyard. My father, did you, did I send you the essay on my dad shipping out? Yes. You did. Okay. Yes. Um, that tells you all about my father leaving, uh, Baltimore as a teenager and working on an ore ship that went down to Venezuela and back. All of my father's buddies were like these waterfront characters that drank beer and ate hard boiled eggs in these neighborhood bars. When I was 18, I bugged the shit out of my father to get me on a ship because I had been reading too much Hemingway and Jack London. Um, and he managed to do it. I, you know, I'm not a sailor. I, I was able to do the physical labor, unskilled, pick this up, move that over there, blah, blah, blah. So I'm 18 when I go to sea the first time. I was making enough money in the summer to pay for my tuition at Loyola College in Baltimore. Uh, and this was another 
wanting this writing life so badly, so desperately, and just putting honest effort out there and, and being lucky enough that, that it was rewarded that things came my way. I knew pr pr prior to age 18 and going to see, I was uh, writing poetry, which is embarrassing. Um, basically, I was rewriting the lyrics to Led Zeppelin songs and calling it poetry. Uh, and I was determined at 18, okay, I'm going to learn to write a short story mm -hmm. and I don't know how to do it. So I, you know, again, I'm, I'm good with throwing words together, but I really don't know how it's done. I bought a copy of David Copperfield by Charles Dickens and read it at sea that summer to figure out structure and how I see narrative as uh, Lego blocks, how mm -hmm. I can put them together so they adhere and, and build a stronger uh, foundation. So I had personal seafaring experience. I grew up in the culture, lots and lots of those Sunday uh, discussions um, at you know, Sunday spaghetti dinner at my grandparents' house with all the people sitting around. Lots of that storytelling was about ships and seafaring and the waterfront. Uh, so I was sort of a natural. And, and David, David Simon and I were uh, desk mates in the in the newsroom of the Sun at, at a very young age. Wow. Uh, I think I got to the Sun maybe two years before him, and I might be a year older than him, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't have to figure out the characters for season two. He asked me to create them. Uh -huh. um, and by create them, what I mean is he would give me a stick figure. Okay, I need a union boss and he's about this age. That's right. all he would say. And so, and man, it was like the, the thing I like best about storytelling, particularly in the world of fiction, it's like playing with puppets. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, that sounds silly, but, no. you know, you know, a puppet show is is, is fascinating um, because they're on the shelf. When Simon gave me these guys, they were unnamed. They just were the very, very broad outlines. Um, so they're dead on the shelf and I got to make them alive. So I, you know, I named Frank Sabaka. Um, I took the name Sabaka. I didn't want a Polish name that ended in SKI. You know, I oh, wanted yeah, a, yeah. something a little, something that, that, that was a little harsher coming off the tongue so that <clears throat> when, uh, what's his, what's the, what's the, uh, captain's name? Who's when you who's, have Valchek, just yeah, saying, Valchek. you know, Frank Valchek. Sabatka so when, so, very aggressively every time. Yeah. Yeah. So when Valchek says things like, I want Frank Sabatka, you know, <laughs> it, 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 it sounds yeah. a little more aggressive than Frank Wisniewski, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, but right. I found the name Sabaka in a Polish cemetery, and uh, I had really? been. Wow. I keep notebooks. You know, I've kept. I've got forty years of journals. I found that name in a Polish cemetery long before I worked for the Wire, and it was like I kept it in my pocket, like you know, oh, it was incredible. a scrap, you know. And then I yeah. said, "Yeah, okay, I'm using it now. I'm using Sabaka now." I named Ziggy after David Bowie's "Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust" and the spiders from Mars. Um, wow. I and, uh, that's crazy. And then Horseface. I think Simon might have named Horseface. But growing up, all of my father's friends had nicknames on the tugboats. There was uh -huh. a guy named Pinhead. 
There was a guy who never bathed that they called Ronnie Rotten Crotch. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. That's good. That's a good name. There was a, a oh, real yeah. skinny guy that called Hercules. You know? Uh, of course. It's classic. Yeah. I knew these characters. I went to the shore with these characters as a little boy. I know the rhythms of their speech. Um, they, they were all uh, good men in terms of... Uh, you know, a lot of them might have drank too much or this or that, or every once in a while, you know, a stolen ham might find its way into somebody's refrigerator. Uh, sure. <laughs> but of course, I didn't know it was stolen when I was nine years old, you know. Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and I was, my brothers and I were taken to bars the way that the Irish will take their kids to the neighborhood pub. It uh -huh. wasn't, these weren't nightclubs. This was a place where a woman like Miss Dolores, I've known so many Miss Doloreses. I yeah. wrote dozens of stories of real life Miss Doloreses um, uh -huh. long before the war. So anyway, you could, you could argue guys that um, all the work I had done prior to 2002 was a curriculum to write the wire mm -hmm. before anyone even knew there would be such a thing as the wire. Which is funneled right into it. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I, um, oh God, that's so interesting. I love knowing that now. <laughs> I'm never going to be able to watch the same. So I, I uh, had you seen season one of The Wire prior to season two? Did you already know the tone of the show? And Yeah, I wrote and, for season one. I wrote a Oh, yeah, duh. I already knew. Uh, sorry. I'm so sorry. I blanked on that for a sec. Sorry. Yeah. I, I apologize. The, I also um, wrote a fair amount of crime for the Baltimore Sun as a young reporter because right. that's how you learn. You know, you cover the police beat. And Simon turned the police beat into a criminal justice sort of, uh, not social justice, but like a, uh, a sociological look at the pathology of crime. Right. Uh -huh. I... I'm not that kind of thinker and I'm not that kind of writer, but I still had to cover, you know, hundreds of, of, of murders. Um, you know, I would take the first pass at these things. So I, I knew what bad guys were like. I knew what these neighborhoods were like, but David Simon and, 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 and uh, Ed Burns, the retired homicide detective, they, mm -hmm. they really and truly knew what it like, what it was like. Um, not just uh, from their respective jobs, but the year they spent on a single drug corner uh, for, you know, the corner made David's reputation. It won Emmys. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, the corner made David's reputation to position him to be able to sell the idea of the wire a couple years later. Yeah. But I, I can't sit here and pretend that uh, I know I, that I relate to the bad guys um, and of course the bad guys were in the longshoremen's, uh, union as well. Um, but I, I, I lived with the, uh, waterfront guys, uh -huh. the, the classical others, you know, the corner boys and all that I knew intellectually. And I know enough about storytelling to maybe amp up the emotion a little bit, uh -huh. but David and Ed and, um, Pelicanos knew these because th that, I don't write crime aside from being paid to do it for television. Yeah. 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 You know, that's not where my instincts tend to go. My, my, my novel, which is going to be over 400 pages long and is now in the third draft. I don't think it has a single crime in it. 
Um, yeah. Anyway, but so so I was, you know, exquisitely suited to write season two of The Wire. Something that we were noticing as we were watching it, and that uh, I mean, heck, you've even said yourself is, heck. Um, heck. oh, I got heck again. You hecked me <laughs> oh, again. Heck, Mac. I didn't even notice it. Let's go get a milkshake, Mac. What the heck? Yeah, let's go. Golly gee whiz. Let's go to the oh, Dairy Queen. Me and you, Ralphie. <laughs> me and right. you, Ralph. Oh gosh, the um. <laughs> Oh God, God, that's so messed up. I hate you. It's fun the, fucking um, with you guys. <laughs> the um, no, the the uh, as we were watching the show, right? Um, yep. We saw a bunch of uh, we, we we noticed the fact that it was very cyclical. We noticed the fact that it. I mean, you even said it yourself that it paced itself like a Russian novel. It, it was very. Like, I never said that. You never said that. no, no. That oh, it was in your book. Yeah, it was in your you book. Read, you read David the truth Simon. be told. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um. The, yes, it was. It was in the yeah, book. I don't talk yes. the way I write. <laughs> Thank God. The, yeah, but it it definitely felt like you know. Tolstoy well, tell me about this like circular Chekhov. thing. What what point are you trying to get at in terms of it 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 sort of repeating itself? Yeah. So so well. Yeah. I, I guess I was just curious, like if if that was something that was one done intentionally, or if that was something that was talked about. The the fact that. Um, you know, for, for a good part of season one, as we were watching it at least, you know, we get to like episode two or three and at first we're like, is this show boring? I don't know yet. And then we realize, oh, I have not been respecting the show nearly enough. I need to go back and watch it from episode yeah. one because everything is happening in the subtext. Everything's happening in the silence. So and, that, um, um, that idea of the layers and, and I think Simon's response to the Russian novel is that it was more like Greek tragedy. Um, those are all decisions made high without me and above me. Uh-huh. Um, that's probably all the stuff that, uh, David and Ed hatched out. Um, sure. a lot of times, you know, they, they were the showrunners and, um, they would figure out or have a very strong notion of the, themes and how those themes intersected and the sociological arguments they wanted to make. Season one was um, the failure of the war on drugs. I have always say these are like the five seasons of The Wire are the five nonfiction books David Simon probably would have written had he never uh, gone to Hollywood, metaphorically gone to Hollywood. Damn. He still lives in Baltimore. Um, number one was the failed war on drugs. Number two was the death of organized labor. Number three was the hollow promises of reform. Number four was the failure of public education. And number five was the complicity of the media in the previous four. Um, he and Ed would, would carve out different uh, plot points. Um, and you can't carve out all the plot points ahead of time because uh, the story, you know, any really good story is alive. And, and you, mm. you, you know, you, you, part of, really learning to write is is when to let it live on its own and when to bring it back and control it a little bit um but by the time it would get to me and 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 some of the other staff writers uh and there weren't many you know uh season two was just me and a woman named joy lusco uh last name now kekken k-e-c-k-e-n she'd be oh, really wow. good to have on this show she's yeah, had some, yeah she's had some recent success in la um by the time it would get to me and Joy, um, we were given a lot of uh, 
leeway to fill these broad outlines in with our skills as storytellers. Um, but the, the larger themes that these characters were going to um, fulfill either positively or negatively were decided um, mm -hmm. by David and, and Ed. Were there ever moments for you uh, where uh, maybe you had a discussion with David and or Ed uh, saying, hey, I don't think maybe like these characters would go through this experience. Like, hey, maybe Nick wouldn't do this or maybe Ziggy wouldn't do this. Was there ever a discussion like that where you felt like um, the sort of idea of what David and Ed want to do with the characters was different than your own? Uh, not too often. Um, it's very hard to win an argument with David Simon. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, and not because he's bullheaded, but because he, he reasons these things out long before you come to him and say, I'm not sure. Oh, I can't true. give you any specific moment. I'll tell right. you this. He was open to all suggestions, all suggestions. And I mm -hmm. think he knew that um, that I was emotionally close uh, to Ziggy. Uh, there might be a little bit of me in Ziggy um, in terms of the maybe the buffoonery, so to speak. Certainly, certainly not the criminality. And, no, uh, uh, we're not. Yeah. We're not accusing you of. Uh, no, no, I get it. I, uh, I cannot think of any specific moment where I said, "David, I really don't think this guy would." Do I remember one suggestion he took from me. Um, do you remember Butchie, the blind bartender, that was the bank for Omar? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, um, I remember bringing up in the writers' room where. You know, if Omar is always under the threat of being robbed himself and he can't go to, you know, the union trust company, where is he keeping his money? And that's they developed uh, Butchie. And um, I, I didn't I didn't I, I did not say I think it should be a, a bartender. But uh, yeah. I thought that the uh, I thought that the decision to make Butchie blind was brilliant. Oh, yeah. Um, so David was always open to suggestion uh, yeah. and, you know, very, very busy running a show. But when he would come into the writer's room, he was there for us. It wasn't yeah. even that we were there for him. He would say, you know, you close the door. He wouldn't let anybody interrupt from the outside of the room. And he goes, all right, I'm here. You've got my attention. What's going on? And uh, very, very uh, thoughtful, very thoughtful man. In terms of the development uh, of the characters as well, and then how that was translated to the actors, uh, were you in like an active resource uh, for the actors? Were did you have yes, like discussions I was, yes, with very them? much so? Uh, mm -hmm. That's fascinating. The best story I have about that is, you know, season two begins with a pissing match between Valchek and Sabaka over stained glass, right? Oh yeah, right. which is I Smart love that. move. Yeah. yeah, I freaking love it. Stained glass. It's a genius. So even though my name is Rafael Alvarez, I'm half Polish. Okay. Mm -hmm. Which is a classic Polish joke, right? Rafael Alvarez, the East Baltimore Polak. Um, <laughs> my mother's all Polish American. And so growing up, not only did I attend mass once in a while with my Italian grandmother in that side of town, but I would attend mass with my Polish grandmother a couple miles away. And 
when we hired this actor, so if you remember also, that poor priest is caught between the pissing match between yeah, Valchek. that's right. And he doesn't know and, what to do. He, he says, oh, you know, mm -hmm. take your fight somewhere else. Yeah. Yep. So he thinks he's hired because the script said Polish priest. He thinks he's hired to be like a priest from Poland. And uh, okay. I forget the gentleman's name. Do you know his name by any chance? I'll look into it right now. Yeah, we can find it. So when Simon finds out that the guy is a little confused, he says, Alvarez, take this guy out and show him what a Polish priest is. Um, because there's a certain accent. There's a certain attitude. So I took him to a diner in a part of Baltimore, a legendary part of Baltimore called Dundalk, which is where Bethlehem Steel used to be, where my grandfather built ships and I'm looking around the diner and I'm looking for the classic Baltimorean that I think this guy can absorb without, of course, the Baltimorean knowing it mm -hmm. and, uh, <clears throat> and try to get a feel for what we're trying to attempt. <clears throat> so it's really not fair to the guy that we told him it was a Polish priest. It would be a Polish American priest in a heavily ethnic Polish neighborhood. Did you find the name? It, yes, it was Tell Monks. Tell Monks. Yeah. I wonder if he, has he worked since? I think in in some other uh, like shorts and TV movies, but aside from that, I do not know. Okay. Uh, I think he he mostly he seems to have done uh, mostly yeah. theatrical. No, oh, uh, good for work. him. So anyway, he was very eager to make a you know he wanted to do a good job. So I take him to this Greek diner. And I'm listening as we're waiting to be seated. And I hear the accent that I know is the real thing. And we sit down in a booth next to these two women. And uh, part of the Baltimore thing is, so after The Wire, I spent about five years writing for NBC in L.A. Right. And uh, people have, you know, The Wire was already legendary by that point. And they'd find out I was from Baltimore and they'd say, what is Baltimore really like? And I said, have you seen a John Waters film? They said, of course. I said, well, they're actually documentaries. <laughs> they're actually documentaries. What a line. So anyway, <laughs> tell, good old Tell was not able to get down with the, uh, with the Polish American vibe of the Baltimore waterfront. Man. And as Man. I recall, he just played a very soft-spoken priest who yeah. wanted no parts of Valchek or Sabaka. Yeah. Uh, so you know, one of the other things Simon had me do was um, when I was on, spec on set, I had to listen for Dominic West lapsing into British accent. Oh, right. Oh, okay. Because he was pretty good at a Baltimore accent. And believe it or not, there's like this little space between those two accents where you can fall onto either side. Like he had a, a real problem saying boat, boat. And he kept saying boot. I'm like, no, boat. So I was like, it's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like a spotter for him. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a pretty, I didn't realize what an opportunity it was. I just, I mean, my God, it fell in my lap. Yeah, sure. I never went to film school. I, I never thought I, you know, I, to this day, I want to write the great American novel. Yeah stupid me when the great american screenplay is where it's at um 
Hey, have you guys seen Mank? I've Mank. not, not yet. You got to. It's all, it's it's about the the writing of Citizen Kane. Is that yes. right? Yes. Yeah. Oh, I it came out like, in the past year. Yeah. Oh. oh when crap. the uh, yeah, I need that. When we went on strike in Hollywood in 2008, which basically mm -hmm. ended my Hollywood career, or I shouldn't say it ended it. It was the reason I decided to come back to Baltimore. I was uh, fortunate enough to meet Mankiewicz's grand nephew, the uh, mm -hmm. the grandson of 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 his brother, Joe Mankiewicz. So what next guys we're coming up on an hour yeah no no worries thank you so much oh my gosh Absolutely. this was this was thrilling and you can find rafael alvarez on patreon patreon.com slash rafael alvarez baltimore absolutely and you can uh become a patron through that is there anything else rafael that you would like to promote yeah my personal website is makingstreetbooks.com m-a-c-o-n-s-t-r-e-e-t b-o-o-k-s.com and that that waitress, that, that pizza waitress who cleans my house in exchange for tutoring, uh -huh. mm -hmm. her first story is on that website. Oh, my gosh. Just click on Liberty and Leeway. It's in the menu. Liberty and Leeway is uh, where she grew up. And, man, she just did a great job. That's fantastic. Just a really, really great job. And it's it's really exciting to see somebody, you know, came up a little bit the hard way and not with a family that really gave her any direction that, at the age of 42, she wants it. She wants it bad, and she's doing the work it takes to get it. Anybody tells you that writing is not work is not a writer. And, I'm, hey, respect to her because that's, that, that's really why we're all here. Yep. You know, is figured out. Process. Yep. Let's, let's get better every day. <laughs> Absolutely, man. So, listen, touch base with me anytime you want. I'd be happy to do this again. Yeah, I, yeah I, we, we, we fully plan on reaching back out. Um, Yes. So, yeah. Th thank you for that. And also, we would love to reach out as well for um, Sophia. Oh my yeah. God. That's so, crazy. what you need to do then is um, you need to touch base with me in mid June after they wrap. Oh, can do, can do. And um, a lot has been written about her after. For all the boys I've loved before, became sort of a sleeper hit that year. Uh, I think right. Variety named her one of the ten young screenwriters to watch. I I, believe I would it. say so. Yes, I totally believe that. <laughs> yeah, like in terms of young writers, it's her and Phoebe Waller Bridge. Those are the only names that I I did literally had no idea that that was your daughter. That's crazy. Oh, you knew Sophia? Oh my God, I've definitely heard of her. Yeah, really. Me, me and the people that. Oh my gosh, the people, me and the people in my circle. Yeah, because we're all, you know we're all writers and directors. We're trying to. You're all theater nerds. Theater and stuff. Yeah, big theater nerds. And so, yeah, the yeah we we definitely. Oh, that's Definitely cool. Heard of her. Well, she's she's made me a grandfather, which has made me very happy. She uh, all there's a lot of little kids on set, the <laughs> children of the producer and the costume designer. And oh man, right, right. So my grandfather, my grandfather, my grandson's going to the beach every day with all these little film kids. <laughs> <laughs> Is that so weird? Like a constant vacation. I know, really. So listen, um, if either of you ever find your way to Baltimore. Please look me up. I'd be happy to show you around. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank yeah. You so and we, yep. we will. Oh, my gosh. That's that's the that is the nicest thing. We'll get a good crab cake. Absolutely. Oh, I'd be happy to. And go to the same so. diner that you took Tell to. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank Bye. you so right. much. Thank you so much, Rafael. Bye, guys. Have a good one. All right.